Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. Our ambition is really to unlock a billion dollars to prevent 150 million tons of plastic pollution, advance a circular supply chain for sustainable features, and deliver competitive returns to investors. We really intend to, to prove that you can create financial, environmental, and social impact, and these things go hand in hand. Hey everyone, when it comes to plastics, we're in a real bind. We have yet to develop and scale attractive alternatives to the petroleum-based plastic products we all use every day, and the plastic industry drives well over a billion tons of greenhouse gases. That's roughly 4% of total global emissions. And plastic-related emissions are on track to double by 2060. Meanwhile, a small fraction, we're talking just less than 10% of plastics are actually recycled. Creating a circular economy for plastics is vital to eliminating the flow of plastic waste into our environment and to reducing the emissions generated from creating new plastic products. Today's conversation focuses on an ambitious effort to catalyze and fund the systemic change needed to get us there. Circulate Capital is working to unlock a billion dollars to invest in circular solutions, and its partner, Circulate Initiative, offers research and insights to track this space and help recruit more private and public investment. We're joined by Ellen Martin, Circulate Capital's Chief Impact Officer, and Umesh Madhaven, Research Director for the Circulate Initiative. We talk about the history and state of the plastics crisis, their current efforts, and the investment opportunities they see. Circulate has impressive momentum in building coalitions of different kinds of investors, from governments to Fortune 100 companies. This blended finance approach is surely a key to mobilizing the commitment we need, and I was grateful to learn so much about it through this conversation. Here we go. Ellen and Yumesh, welcome to Invested in Climate. So great to have you both here with us today. Great to be here. Thanks, Jason. Good to be here, too. Great. Well, let's just get started with some quick introductions. Umesh, Ellen, would you mind introducing yourselves, the organization that you're representing, the role you play, and where you're based geographically? Ellen, would you like to go first? I'm the Chief Impact Officer at Circulate Capital. That means I'm responsible for driving impact and insights and managing ESG through the investment process. Circulate Capital is an investment firm based in Singapore that focuses on addressing the plastic pollution challenge through our investments in infrastructure and innovations in Asia and now in Latin America. My role is really focused on ensuring that the firm's collective strategies and assets and relationships deliver the impact that we're seeking as we grow. 
And I also serve as a senior advisor to the Circulate Initiative, which is a nonprofit that I'm sure Mesh will talk more about, supporting the organization and its partners to connect the best research and insights with the people who can help them so that everyone that needs to take action on the plastic pollution challenge can do so and that we advance an inclusive circular economy. Fantastic. We will definitely hear from Umesh more about the interconnection between the two organizations. But let's start with the introduction. Umesh, over to you. Tell us a bit about yourself and the role that you're playing. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for that great introduction. I'm the research director at the Circulate Initiative, also based in Singapore. I scope and manage the Circulate Initiative's research agenda across circularity-linked themes, ranging from plastic waste management to financing a circular economy for plastics, explaining the climate and plastics connection, and also discussing human rights in emerging markets when it comes to plastic waste management. So the research agenda that we have guides the organization's development of insights, measurement methodologies, resources, and tools. And we do this work to benefit all the stakeholders in in the ecosystem who are coming together to solve a shared challenge. So that's me, and that's me based out of Singapore, working on insights primarily. Fantastic. Umesh, let's go a little bit deeper and try to understand that connection between the two organizations. Not often that I talk to a venture firm and fund that also has a nonprofit that's attached to it. So help us understand how are these two organizations connected and what is the context for having two partner organizations like this? That's a great question, Jason. So early market research by Circulate Capital highlighted the need to improve access to the right knowledge and tools to guide decision making. This was expected that once the decision makers have the right tools and knowledge, it will also help drive more capital to tackling the plastic pollution challenge. And this was the reason why the Circulate Initiative and Circulate Capital are important complements to bringing more capital into the sector and the region. So we were established as a nonprofit, which can actually deliver cutting-edge research, build high-impact programs and partnerships, with a focus primarily on addressing system-level barriers to the circular economy and driving collective action. The idea is that we can support the overall ecosystem, working together with corporations, investors, and policymakers. So we play a catalytic role in in the ecosystem, ensuring that the decision makers have the right tools and resources which can help with their decision-making process. Thanks, Umesh. Let's dive in to learn a bit more about the problem that you're working to address through both of these organizations. And it really comes down to plastic pollution. Umesh, help us understand the state of play. Many people have read that there will soon be more pieces of plastic in the ocean than there are fish, and maybe many have seen images of the massive plastic islands floating in the Pacific. Help us understand the problem. How big of a deal is it, and what's causing it? Sure. Let me share some statistics in relation to this, because numbers are always helpful to understand and put things into context. So according to the OECD, there are an estimated 140 million tons of plastic waste that have already accumulated in the world's oceans and rivers. That shows no signs of slowing down. Now, as consumption increases, as plastic usage increases, waste increases, and this flow of mismanaged plastics is expected to continue unabated into the oceans. Now, mismanaged plastics is a significant problem, especially in emerging markets where waste management infrastructure and processes are lacking. Now, 99% of macroplastics, so when I say macroplastics, those are plastics which we can all see and feel, typically of size bigger than 5 millimeters, are leaked into the environment and that originates from mismanaged waste due to inadequate collection and disposal on land. 
So to tackle that issue, investment is required in solutions for cities and communities that lack sufficient waste management and recycling infrastructure. In fact, 80% of that plastic waste, which I mentioned before, which is flowing into the marine environment, comes through from land-based sources and 60% of that from urban centers. So there's a chronic need for us to make sure that emerging markets have waste management infrastructures which have been set up to support the waste that they're producing, especially as these economies continue to grow and they continue to use plastic and continue to produce that plastic waste. We need to make sure that the plastic goes back into a circular economy rather than ending up in the environment, whether it be on land, in our oceans, or in the air. Thanks, Yamesh. I'm hanging on to the term mismanaged plastics, which actually to me offers some sense of hope that it's not the plastics themselves, but the system through which we use and dispose of the plastics. But give us a sense of the timeline of this problem. When did it start to be a real issue? And what does the future look like if things don't change? Sure. So this is not a very new problem. The ocean plastic issue began to be recognized as far back as the 1960s. But it has caught consumer attention. It has caught the attention of policymakers more recently. It was in the 1980s that, in fact, a huge floating gyre of plastic waste was first discovered in the Pacific. And then in 2015, Jenna Jampek, an environmental engineer at the University of Georgia, she released a groundbreaking study that quantified for the first time the amount of plastic waste that was finding its way into the oceans each year. Now, that actually laid the foundations for a lot of work and a lot of insights and a lot of awareness of the issue, which has since taken off significantly. Now, since that work in 2015, there's been work which has been done by the Pew Charitable Trust and Systemic. And they estimate that in the absence of needed interventions, the plastic waste entering the oceans could annually triple by 2040. Now, one of the things that we need to remember that this is not just an environmental issue, but one for the wider humanity as well. So, for example, if you were to look at the societal lifetime cost, and when I say societal lifetime cost, that is a cost incurred by the society for, say, an environmental cleanup due to the ecosystemic degradation, the shorter life expectancy and the medical treatment for people. I mean, we've seen that plastic has been found in bloodstreams and human placenta and so on. That cost is estimated to reach 7.1 trillion US dollars by 2040. And just to put that number into perspective, that is equivalent to 85% of the global spending on health in 2018. That's how big an issue is. And that's why there's a critical need for us to tackle this problem as soon as possible. So clearly an enormous problem, and as you said, not just an environmental problem, but also a societal problem. Do we think of these issues as separate from climate change, or is it helpful to understand any overlaps between plastic pollution and climate and the urgent need to address the health of our oceans, perhaps, or maybe the role of circular solutions to reduce emissions as well as waste? I think the understanding that these are two interlinked problems is improving. There is more awareness of the connection between the two. Previously, obviously, when it comes to discussions around climate change negotiations, for example, that was seen in isolation. But with discussions around the international legally binding instrument on tackling plastic pollution, or the Plastic Treaty for short, people are realizing that this is a shared problem or an interlinked problem. Plastics contribute to climate change at all stages of their life cycle. So let me put that into context. The plastics life cycle was estimated to contribute about 1.8 gigatons of GHG greenhouse gas emissions in 2019. So if you were to put that into context, as as a country, 
it would be the fourth largest GHG emitter behind only China, the US and India. Now, it means that the efforts to curb plastic pollution will also result and will also support the global fight against climate change. So helping investors, policymakers and other stakeholders understand the effects of plastic pollution on climate change through data is key to drive action. And it was in this context that actually we launched what's called as PLACES or the Plastic Lifecycle Assessment Calculator for the Environment and Society. It's a tool, which is a first open access climate impact tool, which tracks GHG emissions, energy, and water consumption of plastic waste management and recycling solutions across South and Southeast Asia. So with tools such as these, we hope that it will enable decision makers to better understand the climate impact of waste management and recycling practices and make sure that there is better tools and data for decision making. Thanks, Sumesh. Ellen, this seems an important time to turn to you, understand Circulate Capital, and hopefully inject the conversation with some solutions and some of the opportunity that you see. Tell us a bit about your firm and why it was established and what you're aiming to do. As Umesh pointed out, it was really about 10 years ago that the research started to come forward about really the scale and nature of the plastic pollution challenge in oceans. And it really inspired us and a group of our corporate partners to establish Circulate Capital. So back in 2018, we set up the Circulate Capital Ocean Fund with investment from some of the world's largest brands and leading global corporations in the plastics value chain, including Pepsi, Procter & Gamble, Dow, Danone, Chanel, Unilever, Coke, CP Chem, and Mondelez. And we were, at the time, the world's first investment fund dedicated to scaling infrastructure and innovations that would be the solutions to the challenge, transforming waste management, recycling, and other solutions in high-growth markets where the challenge of mismanaged plastics is really the most dire. This issue we knew was systemic. So definitely both plastic pollution and the climate crisis are really too big for any one company to solve on its own. We needed partnership from those corporations. We needed to help establish the Circulate Initiative as a nonprofit working on this issue and have since also garnered support from development banks, including the European Investment Bank and IFC and Proparco, as well as private investors and family offices to really demonstrate that what we could do with private capital to invest in and scale these solutions was something that could have a greater impact over time. At this point, we have three active funds. We're investing across Asia and Latin America and kind of two complementary strategies. So the infrastructure investments are happening through Circulate Capital's recycling supply chains portfolio, and that really targets investments that are dealing with the post-consumption aspects of what needs to happen on ground. And then the Circuit Capital Disrupt portfolio invests in more innovative technology solutions and new delivery models, advanced recycling technologies, and alternatives to single-use plastic. So that's kind of the core of our investment strategy. And then we've also had the backing of the U.S. Development Finance Corporation in collaboration with USAID, to have more of a blended finance approach. Doing something like this is often too risky for more traditional private equity firms. And so this blended finance mechanism really de-risked our investments and is incentivizing private capital to come in. 
So at this point, we also then are sought to, with the corporate investors in at first, diversify that investment pool to others. Today, our AUM has reached 245 billion US. And ultimately, I think our ambition is really to unlock a billion dollars to prevent 150 million tons of plastic pollution, advance a circular supply chain for sustainable features, and deliver competitive returns to investors. We really intend to, to prove that you can create financial, environmental, and social impact, and these things go hand in hand. Ellen, I'd love to go back to the blended finance model that you brought up because it might not be familiar with a lot of listeners. Help us understand how you're able to de-risk the investments by taking concessionary capital or you know, what the mechanisms really are and what it really means in the end for the solutions you're seeking. First and foremost, if you're a mainstream private equity investor, you're looking for a fairly high market rate return on a fairly short timeline, like typically three to seven years. Now, these business models are typically certainly viable, but they're existing in a market context and, as Umesh pointed out, a policy environment that is quite dynamic at the moment. Going into a market and trying to understand one solution within a larger supply chain or value chain is challenging for an investor that isn't quite as focused on this particular issue as we are. What it means, though, is that we have gone in with support from public sources, so development banks or donor agencies that can help to de-risk the investments. One example where we've made use of this type of blended finance model has been with a joint venture in Indonesia called Prevented Ocean Plastics Southeast Asia. This is a opportunity to expand collection of plastics in communities in Indonesia where there isn't uh, great recycling or waste management infrastructure. And then the feedstock of that plastic that's collected then goes to be processed by our joint venture partner, Palindo. So it's a model that really creates additional impact, recovering more plastic than had been previously recovered, and then feeding it right into a process that allows it to then be returned to new products and packaging down the line. So that model was initially a loan, a convertible loan that we provided with a loan guarantee from the USDFC. And we also then subsequently, Popsy was able to get a grant from USAID, Clean Cities Blue Ocean, to further extend its reach into different parts of Indonesia. And with that grant was able to essentially do more than we could have done alone with just our convertible loan. The project's just underway, and we expect that it will be able to recover hundreds of thousands of tons of plastic over the coming years. Ellen, it seems you're painting the picture of a highly collaborative investment ecosystem where different types of investors are brought together to try to solve the challenge of plastic waste. Tell us more. We have been fortunate to have, as I mentioned, quite a bit of investment from a number of different LPs so far, but it's certainly not enough to solve the challenge on its own. Anytime that we're able to work with other co-investors on our deals, it's really helpful and can also then bring about other partnerships for the benefit of the recycling companies as well as the benefit of the system. Ellen, most venture funds don't have chief impact officers. So your role really suggests that Circulate Capital is doing something different. 
Tell us about your role and how it's focused. I love my job. I think it's a terrific opportunity to really make use of private capital in a different way. And I think because of our founding really oriented around the ocean plastic challenge, everything we do and everything we invest in comes with an impact lens right up front. So we're not investing in business models that have a conflict of interest, if you will, with driving towards a circular economy. So I like to talk about how essentially these companies are making money by creating impact and how they create the financial returns that ultimately we all hope to see is really the source of how we get our impact. A large part of my role has also then, because we are investing in high growth markets, also around ESG and making sure that we are inherently building in responsible environmental management, as well as social issues to improve livelihoods of the workforce and communities that are involved in the system. Thanks, Ellen. You mentioned that you have many LPs that are large companies that are deeply involved in the plastic supply chain. And it's great that they're putting skin in the game, but of course, they could be massively helpful in scaling circular solutions through their core businesses. Have their positions in the market been helpful to honing your investment thesis, your due diligence, and ultimately helping your portfolio companies grow? Absolutely. And actually, I should say that part of our definition of impact is ultimately that the companies we're investing in can scale to meet the demand of these large corporations and participate in the global supply chain for circular materials. So, I mean, with our support of our corporate LPs, the portfolio companies themselves really gain some market opportunities. We're accessing our corporate partners throughout the whole process. So we go to them for their expertise and advice about technologies and local and regional context. The companies are involving their procurement teams and forging agreements and developing partnerships with the recycling companies themselves. It's a real testament to the idea that corporates have a much more nuanced and multi-pronged approach to addressing this challenge, not just being a producer of plastic waste. For example, since establishing the country's first premium food-grade recycling facility, one of our portfolio companies, Sri Chakra, based in India, has entered into partnerships with two of our LPs, both Coke and Pepsi, to supply high-quality recycled resin for their bottles and are helping to produce the very first 100% R-PET bottles in the country. Similarly, another of our portfolio companies in India, Lucro, is, which was one of our very first investments, actually, is partnering with Dow to develop and launch a special solution for plastic films using post-consumer recycled plastics. And it's a co-branded material that is going out into the market. And we're incredibly proud of the successes and partnerships we've been able to help facilitate. Ellen, thank you so much. Umesh, let's turn back to you and understand some of the research that you're conducting through the Circulate Initiative and really how it relates to the work that Ellen's doing with Circulate Capital. And let's dive into the plastics economy. We all use countless plastic products every day. What should we all know about the plastics economy and how it works? System-wide change is actually needed, and I think that's critical for everyone to understand when it comes to a problem as significant and as huge as the plastic pollution challenge. But that's not to say that individual contributions don't make a difference. They do. So I'll share one of the results from a study we did with environmental nonprofit Delterra, 
which highlighted that recycling behavior change as in fact an outsized influence on the economics of recycling and the return on investment of effecting that change is significant so if you enforce behavior change as we learned for through that study boosting recycling behavior actually costs less than the additional technology investments which are needed downstream to manage the waste which is generated now obviously governments and policy makers and and local and civil corporations have their own role to play as well because it's one thing for you to do all of that segregation at home and then realize that when the vehicle comes to pick up the waste it's all mixed together and as a user of the material as a household you'll think that all of your effort goes to waste so we need to make sure that while we are promoting recycling behavior and there is a very quick payback there's also the follow through of all the other participants in the value chain to make sure that these systems actually work so on the one hand we are hoping that such behavioral change can drive significant impact on tackling a pollution as large as plastic pollution but at the same time that actually requires concerted action from all of the stakeholders who are involved in the ecosystem thanks umesh i want to circle back to the idea of mismanaged plastics and also your focus on asia and latin america help us understand what plastic mismanagement really means why it occurs and why it creates the opportunity for you to invest in these markets i mean when you look at emerging markets obviously the priorities could be slightly different on a very local municipality level for example they have competing priorities and when it comes to budget allocation there are expenditure which needs to be set aside by local municipalities for other needs especially on the back of the past 3 years where healthcare was a significant item and local municipalities had to sort of draw down on resources for healthcare rather than set aside money for something as waste management but that is increasingly a problem simply because like i said mismanaged plastic and let me define mismanaged plastic a little better so that the listeners can understand so that is plastic waste which is very simply put not properly managed which means the plastic either ends up as being littered on roads and so on and so forth or is not treated properly ends up in landfills or as is common in a lot of the emerging markets when you don't have that requisite infrastructure people just end up burning the waste because there's no one who's coming to your homes to pick up that waste there's nothing that you can do and you just say that the simpler solution to that is burning of that waste now this is a significant environmental problem because one of the things that people refuse to realize and this goes back to the earlier conversation we had about the climate and plastics connection is that burning plastic results in significant emissions which actually can be tackled if you can provide that basic waste management infrastructure burning just one ton of plastics actually results in releasing almost 3 tons of emissions entering into the gg emissions entering into the atmosphere which is really significant and if you can manage that plastic waste and avoid that waste from being burnt this has a significant impact on reducing that emissions in south and southeast asia where we have like i said challenges with respect to the funds which are available to build waste management infrastructure open burning is a significant problem we've realized that in countries like indonesia thailand vietnam philippines a lot of these countries actually don't have the requisite infrastructure and people end up op- open burning of the waste and that leads to a emissions problem which is connected back to the climate change issue so it manifests itself differently in different countries since in some of the other emerging markets recycling rates are better india is a good example where given the significant informal economy any plastic which is of value often gets picked up but in some of the other economies the informal sector is not as dominant the waste does not get picked up as much 
And hence, there are competent issues which need to be addressed. Thanks, Umesh. Umesh, the Circular Initiative maintains an investment tracker that is tracking now over $4 billion in investments in the circular economy for plastics. Give us a sense of how that investment is broken down. What spaces are receiving the most investment? And on the flip side, where do you think more investment is needed? Jason, I'm so happy that you actually asked me this question because a few years ago, when in discussion with Circulate Capital, we thought of a fundamental need to address the challenge of capital flows into this space. Providing transparency into investments was one of the first things that came to all of our minds. So what we learned through our work with the investment tracker is that Asia is receiving majority of the capital for plastic circularity, about 87% of the total funding. Like I said before, this may be in part due to the growing awareness of the investment opportunities in the region, partially due to the inadequate waste management infrastructure which exists. So as this challenge becomes more clearer and more pronounced, it presents the potential to deploy interventions and get circularity as a default option in rapidly developing parts of this region. So one way to look at that data in terms of the total capital is to look at it from a geographical perspective. Let me analyze that data and present it in a slightly different way. So if you look at the whole plastics value chain, downstream solutions, which is typically what happens after the plastic becomes waste. So this is recycling investments or recovery services that received the highest share of that total investment during the period studied between 2018 and the first nine months of 2022. 88% of total monies, which would actually went into the plastics value chain, went into solutions which are tackling plastic waste problem once the plastic becomes waste. And that was another key insight because it showed to the users of the data that there is a need for us to spread that money around a little bit more in the middle part of the value chain or upstream even before plastic is produced to ensure that we are not dealing with waste plastic once it becomes waste but we can think through solutions which actually occur further up the value chain. Now, our understanding is that there is a higher investor interest in downstream solutions, primarily because there's a more mature model, business model, compared to, say, an alternative material to plastic or a refill and reuse. And there's also that risk averseness, which most investors have, because when they look at it, they'll feel that, oh, maybe the payback or the return on investment when it comes to emerging solutions such as alternatives to plastics or refill and reuse may not be as pronounced as a recycling or a recovery solution. And this is where when Ellen mentioned blended finance, I was like, yep, this is exactly that. Blended finance actually offers that sort of risk return profile to investors bringing in both public and private sources of capital to the fore to make sure that there is a more diverse financing across a plastics value chain. The investment tracker was launched precisely inform investors and not just investors, people across the value chain of these kind of trends and insights which can help with the decision making which is needed to ensure that we can accelerate the capital flows into tackling the plastic pollution problem. Thanks, Mesh. Really helpful and fascinating to know that 88% of investment dollars are happening downstream. Ellen, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. And particularly, you mentioned that you have two different funds, one focused downstream and one focused on disruptive, innovative solutions, looking at things like alternatives to single-use plastics. How are you thinking about it from an investment lens of where are the greatest opportunities and where are investors most interested in playing? When we started the Ocean Fund in 2018, we didn't have the plastic circularity investment trackers. So I have to be clear that like the work that has to be done for an investor to really see 
the investable opportunities in this space and to build on a track record didn't really exist when we got started. I'm so delighted that the tracker is now helping to make that capital landscape more transparent and visible to other investors in this space. I think it's going to be really critically important as we advance and continue to scale and grow lots of different solutions in many markets around the world. For us, it's critically important that we find investments and investment opportunities that work on different time horizons. The nearer-term solutions, as has been pointed out, tend to be on more of the post-consumer side of things. But there's still so much to do there because that ultimately is already the material that's escaping into the environment and we need to stop the flow of that material. But certainly the upstream solutions as well are critically important. And that's why we have focused as well in looking for more solutions that might include alternatives to more traditional single-use plastics and materials that involve refill or reuse or indeed create more sustainable materials for the way that we live our lives as consumers. Regionally, I think we also then have more to do around the regions that we're investing in. So both in South and Southeast Asia, as well as in Latin America and Caribbean. These areas are fast growing and we find that actually investing across the full value chain, including upstream in the same ecosystem has kind of a beneficial or amplifying effect because you do have then more potential partners who are going to work together on the solutions and address the issues of the insufficient existing systems and ways that capital are typically flowing in that space. Ellen, it seems like just with climate and climate investing, this is a race that we are trying to keep up with the production and distribution and ultimately the waste of plastic by putting more capital into the hands of more innovators and trying to develop more solutions upstream and downstream. But at the same time, the growth of use of plastics continues as economies grow and as, as demand grows. And the work that you're doing is so impressive. And I know you're not the only ones in the market doing this. But you say that we need to do more. And I'm curious, how much more? Are we even coming close to slowing the plastic waste problem? Or is it continuously an increasingly uphill battle? I mean, I think it's a really valid question. I think as sitting on the investment side of this equation, I would say that capital, private capital in particular, has a specific role to play. But it's not the only role, as Umesh mentioned. The behavior change issue needs to come forward. The momentum around the Plastics Treaty and changing the regulatory environment has a huge effect on private capital. It's not actually a connection that's often made, but I think we'd even say in the U.S., as you were mentioning before, a typical linear system in which the producers sit on one side, producing materials and goods and services that we all as residents and consumers need and use is not connected to the waste management side, the services and essential infrastructure that's really typically the realm of the public sector. With this disconnect, you don't have a really solid ability to create the circular economy. And I think that's the role that we need to focus on is how can we be an intermediary to make those connections clearer 
I think the regulatory environment, for example, in which you're incentivizing through policies more use of recycled content or indeed even incentivizing alternatives to single use, those will then signal to the capital markets and to the large manufacturers and industries to change. And I think that's going to really be part of the solutions that we need to address. And then the capital will come in. I don't have concern about that, just seeing how we've seen that happen already in renewable energy and other sectors where we've seen that relationship really take hold and change comes slowly for sure, but it's happening. And you're right, the urgency is really critical and we all have to be staying focused and kind of not getting distracted. You've brought up the plastics treaty a couple of times. I'm really curious to learn what is it, what's the state of play with it and what impact will it have? From a momentum perspective, it is fantastic that we have the Plastics Treaty. I mean, actually, they've sort of stopped short of calling it the Plastics Treaty anymore, and it's called an international legally binding instrument on tackling plastic pollution. It's it's quite a mouthful. But the idea behind the treaty is that by the end of 2024, we'll have a global legally binding instrument, which actually the governments can use in terms of getting direction around how to tackle the plastics pollution challenge. And now we've had two intergovernmental negotiation committee meetings, the most recent one in Paris. We have another one coming up in November in Nairobi, Kenya, where these member states actually sit down and discuss what that treaty or that instrument should look like. Now, as a nonprofit organization such as ourselves, we are observers and we contribute to the process by sharing our own thoughts, views, insights, and tools to ensure that the treaty considers all aspects which are relevant to do, to tackling the plastic pollution. And let me share two examples of these because just two days ago, the Zero Draft, which is the really basic document of the legally binding instrument, came through and that's now being discussed threadbare. One instrument which is of particular interest to us is the Just Transition, which relates to the inclusion of informal waste workers, whom I mentioned earlier in the conversation, are a critical part or a backbone of actually the waste recycling systems in emerging markets. There is a starting point there. It is great to see that a global treaty actually acknowledges the contribution of informal waste workers, especially in emerging markets, because they, in the absence of them, I can tell you that none of these recycling systems in emerging markets would really work well. We are also expecting that there will be intense negotiations. It is not going to be an easy process, obviously, as with climate negotiations or any of the multilateral negotiations which have happened before. There will be different perspectives which need to be considered. But I am hopeful that by the end of 2024, we will have an instrument which shows us and guides us the way in terms of the measures that can be taken from a policy perspective at a national level in terms of tackling what I would call as a crisis of a lifetime. I am really looking forward to the next discussions which happen in Nairobi and then hopefully through that process we'll get a solid treaty or an instrument by the end of 2024. Thank you for the detour into the policy arena, which obviously is massively important, especially for creating the systemic change that you've described as being needed. Ellen, you've talked about how circulated capital really began in Asia and then started a fund focused on Latin America. And I'm really curious how the plastic economies differ between the two regions, and if there's different investment opportunities that you see in each. It's interesting that you ask that because, of course, we have learned a bit from our experiences in investing in Asia. And, so, and when we 
started talking about fun in Latin America and the Caribbean, we actually started with a two-year landscaping process, getting to know each region, getting to know the entrepreneurs and SMBs and innovators who were working in that space, and starting to understand the investable opportunities. And also working with our corporate partners to understand what they were seeing and what the needs were there. I think rather than describing Latin America and the Caribbean as a single region with a set of characteristics, just as I would never try to do that in Asia, it's actually interesting to consider some of the similarities across. So for example, India is a very large landmass with a huge market and lots of diverse and fairly mature players in the space already. India is really more like Brazil. Brazil similarly plays an outsized role in the whole South American continent in, in terms of recycling infrastructure, but also with the challenge of having a tremendous landmass. So you have that. And then the islands of, say, Indonesia or the Philippines are in many ways very similar to the kinds of challenges and investment needs that need to happen in the Caribbean. So rather than kind of say this region's like this, that that region's like that, I think we understand that the contours of geographies, of policies, of where the existing infrastructure is today really play a role in shaping our understanding of each of those opportunities. Great, thanks. And what about the US and Europe? I think that Western countries use more per capita plastic. Are there great investment opportunities here? So our work focuses currently on high growth markets, really from an impact perspective, but also identifying that there are opportunities to finance innovations and infrastructure that can drive that transition to circularity over time. In markets like US and Europe, we definitely see potential in scaling those innovations, including alternative materials and delivery models, advanced recycling, deep technologies that might apply, for example, like big data or AI to global circular supply chains. And we have made investments actually in three US-based companies that are part of the innovation strategy to develop some of those solutions. For example, we invested in a US-based company called Cirque that is a recycling technology that can take a polycotton blended textile and chemically recycle it into separate unique products that can be made back into textiles. It's a tremendously interesting technology. They recently announced a partnership with a subsidiary of a Taiwan-based company called Asalon Chemicals and Fiber Corporation. The Ace Green, which is their partner, is manufacturing a filament lyocell for the fashion industry. And that is a product that has a substantially lower carbon emission profile than your typical petroleum-based blends or, or synthetic fabrics. So that's an example where we like to see these technologies be closer to high growth markets and do some tech transfer work there. And we see our value add as really, you know, then being able to have the on-ground on presence in the region to help them scale over time. Thanks, Ellen. Ellen, Umesh, let's close out by hearing your visions for the future. If we're successful, how will the world use and handle plastics in the future? And what do you think are the most important steps that aren't currently being taken 
but that we need to start taking to get there. One of the things that I appreciate every day is the scale of this challenge is so big, and it really requires an all-hands-on-deck approach. All investors, from private to institutional, have a role to play to tackle the crisis and really capture the economic value of doing things in a, a different way. So I think innovative financing mechanisms and partnerships really have taught me that we can mitigate those risks that typically prevent capital from coming in, and we can help to mobilize investors and bridge the funding gaps that are hampering our transition to circular economy. If we are going to be successful, I think the world has to really change and recognize that there's a different way to use the resources we have to create the systems change we want to see. I think the success of our portfolio so far underscores the validity of the blended finance approach. And we hope that we can continue and that we can really demonstrate and continue to demonstrate that how different types of capital can come together can really change the sector and that we see more attraction with private and institutional investors in the future. Ellen, thank you so much. Umesh, over to you to take us home. I am really optimistic and I strongly believe that the momentum behind the need to address the plastic pollution challenge will continue to grow. I mean, the legally binding instrument on plastic pollution or the plastic treaty, which we discussed earlier, will provide useful guidance for countries. I expect to see more corporate commitments coming through on recycled content, reduce consumption of avoidable plastics, and on the consumer side, an improved understanding awareness and sentiment and desire to tackle the plastic pollution crisis. However, to close, I'll go back to what Ellen mentioned about the all-hands-on-deck approach. As you think through the plastic pollution challenge, it is a multifaceted systems problem. And for such a problem such as this, multi-stakeholder action is required. And we strongly believe that cooperation between governments, investors, corporates, academia, and consumers is needed to bridge the existing systemic gaps, and that will help facilitate the transition to a circular economy for plastics. Umesh, Alan, thank you so much for your time today and for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.